Hey, listeners, I need your attention, and not in the fun, lighthearted way that I usually need your attention. This interview is going to get very dark compared to most of the things I've published. It talks almost entirely about crimes against children in particular. I know that it's not going to be for everyone, and I completely understand anyone out there choosing not to listen to this episode. I'll be back to my usual with the next episode, but I really think we need to be having more open and honest discussions like this for the sake of those who can't speak for themselves. And Carrie Cohan, our guest today, is an excellent guest to talk about this, considering that she is responsible for 14 of the most prominent child protection laws in the entirety of Canada. I also want anyone listening who might be having troubles in their lives of any kind to know that I'm here for you, and so is the rest of the amazing community that makes up the audience here at the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Don't ever hesitate to reach out to me if you're struggling, you feel like you just need someone to lean on. Just send me an email. Anything. Dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com. We'll get through it together. And while we're at it, let's protect every child together. Welcome to the podcast, Carrie Cohan. Hi, thank you. Yes, thank you so much for coming on. Could you give a brief intro just for anyone listening? Sure. Well, today we're talking about child protection, child pornography, child abuse, all of that stuff. Uh, It was new to me in 1998. I never thought it affected my family. And I soon came to realize that it affects pretty much all families, including my own. Uh, we had a three-time convicted pedophile enter our house, and he tried to kidnap our daughter in 1998. When she was two years old, she was still in the crib. And that catapulted me into a whole 17-year-long career of protecting children and amending and writing 14 laws in Canada to protect children from predators. And funny enough, we ended up bringing a lot of American laws into Canada, like Amber Alert and so many more. So that's been my interesting journey that I went from being learning disabled and failing classes, you know, grade eight and grade 12 and and really being deemed as never amounting to anything to being a federal government witness. And it's been quite a journey. It sounds like quite a journey and quite a an experience at that. Mm. So it, it's a I movie. Mean, is it? <laughs> it's really a movie. It has, you know, death threats and car chases and oh, all kinds of stuff in it. It's really been a an adventure. All right. Well, can we start the start of this movie, so to speak? <laughs> I mean, this man enters your house day, night, was it? It was during the day. There's an organization out of the States called NAMBLA, North American, North American Man Boy Love Association. And their big thing in the 90s specifically was to teach potential uh, predators how to groom uh, their victims, how to 
do things to skirt the law and what they could do to a certain limit, what they couldn't do, and how to get around the law, right? So what I saw in, in this predator was no different. Um, he entered our house with a burnt roast and uh, it was burnt to char, like burnt, burnt, burnt. And I thought, you know, later looking back, he had to go through that whole process to protect himself. You know, that was his alibi. So anyways, I'm, I'm in northern British Columbia in our trailer. We owned a trailer park up there and we were renovating it at the time. So we were living in one of our own trailers, uh, mobile homes, we want to call them. And so anyways, I'm in the kitchen. I have a big long knife. It's, it's like a 12 inch long knife and I'm cutting up vegetables, making a salad. And I felt someone behind me and uh, I didn't smell the roast, funny enough but I could feel him behind me. And then I heard the creaking of the, the floorboard and I turned around with a knife and saw him there. He was over six feet. He was very muscular, quite built. And he was heading towards the nursery with this roast. And he was like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I burnt this roast and I thought I'd give it to your dog. I was like, what the hell are you doing in my house? Get out now. And so I chased him out with a knife in my hand. And, uh, you know, I'm under five feet. <laughs> so that was really quite a feat. You know, there was my instincts were screaming at me that this wasn't just, you know, a random thing. Like, he, he didn't burn the roast, and he wasn't trying to feed our dog. He was heading towards the nursery where our two year old was sleeping at the time. And it turned out that he had moved in next door six months prior. And he had been casing out our, our property for all that time. He knew our routines. He knew our little one. And, uh, and he had eight prior children that he had molested, four prior, uh, three prior convictions, but four prior cases that were heard. And so anyways, I, I phoned up the neighbor who owned a, a motel next door, and that's where he was staying. And I knew her, the owner, and said, one of your guests just came into our house. She goes, oh, my God, Carrie, I'm so sorry. I should have let you know, but he has a history with little boys and you have a little girl. I never thought he would go after her. And she looked like a little boy because she had been in children's hospitals. So her hair was really short. She was in overalls because she couldn't have anything tight around her belly. She was so sickly. And I later learned that's what pedophiles often go for is children that are either neglected or very sickly and can't fight back. So I ended up um, phoning the police and said, if I suspect someone has a is a pedophile, can I, you know, ask their history? Can I see if if this is accurate? Because I didn't want to, you know, condemn him on on this. Maybe it was a roast that was burnt. You know, I don't want to jump to conclusions. The police, you know, sent over two of the tallest police officers I've ever seen within minutes of me saying his name. They wanted to know where he was, where he was living. It turned out that he was uh, warrant expiring, meaning that, you know, he had served his full term. And so they didn't even know he was in town. So they came after him. They couldn't do anything because he hadn't done anything to violate his parole, right? Even entering our house, not knocking, just creeping in past me while I'm standing in the kitchen. So they said that that wasn't anything wrong. I realized very quickly 
that, you know, he had more rights than we did as a family. In fact, the police came back after they looked into him. And in 1998, we didn't have, you know, the setup of the computers across the country. So to do, you know, a search to see if he had any prior warrants out for his arrest, it would take three months to go across the entire country and to come all the way back through all of the major centers to see if he actually had any major warrants. So that was one of the things that we worked on, actually, to get the computer systems lined up across the country. You know, there were a lot of things that uh, came out of this. Uh, and like I said, I, I learned very quickly that he had more rights than we did. So I thought, this is baloney, you know, someone's got to do something. And I always considered myself kind of stupid. <laughs> you know, I was learning disabled and we didn't know about dyslexia or learning disabilities back then that I couldn't read very well. And I was always told that I was lazy or there was something wrong with me, you know. And in school, I was in the dummy class in grade eight. So I was waiting for someone else to do something. I, I waited for years, you know, two years for someone else to actually do something. And finally, I was living in Calgary, Alberta, and two little girls were molested in their own homes. And I thought, that's it. I heard the news report. And it sounds strange, perhaps, to some, but I have a, a very strong intuition. And I, I get like this little voice inside, Carrie, you have to do this. And that's exactly what happened. You know, that was my greatest fear. And I made a deal with God, Creator. Buddha, Allah, whoever it is up there. And uh, I made a deal with them that you do it, you know, you make it easy for me, I'll take the steps and I'll, I'll start the movement. And that's exactly what we did in Calgary, Alberta, started Mad Mothers Against Pedophiles and defied all odds because I ended up uh, speaking and working with all the prime ministers, sitting on round tables and, and doing all kinds of stuff. So, And is it? I, I mean, the roast thing alone gets me that you're just like, who walks into someone else's house? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, with a burnt roast. With a and burnt it was roast. so premeditated. Yeah. So premeditated. But, you know, they, they learn these things from associations like NAMBA, right? How to go into um, dance classes and be able to watch kids dance and pretend that you're a parent when you're not you know, just to be voyeuristic, those kinds of things. I, I actually, I was proud of this one because it was 2000 that I, the year 2000, I heard about NAMBLA. I wanted to look into what they were doing. And so I made up a profile of a man and Thomas something or other. I can't remember his, his last name. Anyway, so I signed up and I started getting all of their information and their brochures and their newsletters and stuff. And I was able to bring that to the police and then expose that. The police weren't able to do much. So again, I brought it from coast to coast. I started speaking on Canada AM, which is like Good Morning America, right? I spoke coast to coast on every radio station. I got the name NAMBLA out there. They were in hiding uh, before I discovered them. I thought, no, 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 no. You're not going to be in hiding any longer. <laughs> yeah. They're not like a, a current organization, right? They're not. Oh, yes. Oh, they're yeah. still they're up still and running. Around. 
they were the ones that actually were the initial pushers of sex, sex ed, because ultimately they wanted to have the ability to teach or to, to speak with children about sex and say, see, this is a normal thing. And, you know, parents can do it with kids and kids can do it with parents and yeah, or adults. Uh, if you look into their history, that was what was being given to us in 1999, 2000 was that was a hot topic back then was sex ed and how to push it even more, you know, the gamut to younger ages. So yeah, you go and you talk across the country. Mm-hmm. Are you the first of your kind to do it? I was. I was. I was the very first in 1998. There was no one else, not that I knew of, and in our country, anyways, in Canada, there was several movements starting up in the United States around that time as well, like Amber Alert, that was just beginning around then as well. And so we were able to, or I was able to look at, you know, various laws and go, we need that one, we need that one. There was a study that was put out, it was a 178 page study by Epcat, I think it was called. And forgive me, this is going back like 20 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, the EPCAT report, that was basically saying that Canada was going to become a pedophile haven the way that it was going. Because in the States, I was able to present to the Justice Committee of Canada um, several studies. And, and in the States, a, one single pedophile you know, a convicted pedophile would get, say, 300 years, right, conviction. And the same, you know, conviction in Canada, they would get six months less, you know, a day or less time served. Um, At that time in 1998, 2000, right into mid-2000s, actually, the average sentence for a convicted pedophile was six to eight months served time. That's it. I thought that was criminal. Yeah. And there was a long period of time where the government, the courts would actually fine the pedophile of 500, 1,000, 1,500. And it wasn't for retribution for the victim. It would go to the courts. So the Canadian government was actually profiting from the crime of child abuse, right? Well, and, and from reoffense, it sounds. Absolutely. Yes. All of it. I have so many stories. Um, the car chase that I was talking about, that was kind of fun. In retrospect, it was scarier than all hell at the time, right? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm a young mom, I've got little ones, and I had to go into hiding, actually, because I was exposing some pedophile rings that were really large in Canada. There was one in Cornwall and one in uh, Nova Scotia. It was the uh, Kingsclear uh, Penitentiary you know, pedophile ring. That one involved a premier of the province, which would be like the governor of a state, right? And what he was doing was, he's he's passed on now, but Premier Hatfield was his name. He would get the RCMP officer, McCann, to go to Kingsclear uh, Youth Pen Penitentiary. And Carl Toft was the guard on duty. He would sign out a group of teen boys They would be picked up by the police officer or the RCMP officer, transported to these private parties that were at Premier Hatfield's residence. And it would be uh, senators, judges, you know, you name it, the highest, the most elite of the personalities in in Canada. These were senators, you know, from, from Ottawa. 
right, that were at these private parties. And the boys were prostituted out. And then they'd be brought back to the pen and they'd have visitation with their parents. And they'd say, Mom, I went to Premier Hatfield's house last night and, you know, and this happened. These are delinquent boys that are in the prison for a reason. They had no credibility. And so no one believed them for years and years and years. Finally, Carl Toft, he was convicted for 283 kids, I think it was. I probably should have looked at this before the interview. <laughs> but it was, it was well over 200 uh, uh, kids, boys, I should say, uh, young, young boys in their teens. He was convicted on, on uh, child abuse with them. So when he was being released early, after nine years of his 13-year ter term for over 200 kids, keep in mind, right? So when he was being let out early, I got wind of it. And the parole board in Canada had never rescinded a decision ever. When they make a decision, that's that. And we were able to put so much pressure on them about his release. I went again, coast to coast. I was like a siren, sounding alarm. And we were able to get them to rescind that decision. They sent him off to Sus the Saskatchewan Penitentiary for another year for examinations. And then he went through the system again. So during that time, when I was sounding the alarm, I was holding town hall meetings. And I held one that was going to be right at the foot of like a halfway house where he was scheduled to go and stay. And we had a large town hall meeting. We told them exactly who he was, what he was about, and why they didn't, these good people didn't need him in their neighborhood, especially with all the kids that were in the neighborhood. There was playground, literally. He could watch from his cell to a playground. It was just the worst placement for him. Anyways, I had this town hall meeting. And uh, as I was leaving, when I was looking across the parking lot, when I was leaving this town hall meeting, it was one of the last ones. I had a politician with me, Peter Goldring. He was an MP. And he and I were talking on the step and then he got in his car and my car was parked right outside the door, thankfully. As I was getting into the car, I looked way across the parking lot and there was another car kind of in the dark and it, it was just starting to get nightfall. And I thought, there's someone in that car. Nah, you know, oh, Carrie, <laughs> yeah. you know, stop it, right? So anyways, I get in my car and I drive off and it was a part of town I didn't know well. And so I had to make an illegal turn on a freeway because <laughs> I realized I was going way out of town and I did a quick loop and it was totally illegal what I did. It was like jumping the, the, the divide there, the divide. <laughs> yeah. But I did that and I zoomed around and I came to a light and as I'm sitting at the light, this guy comes flying up beside me and he's panicking. He's looking around and then he looks at me. And he looks down, you know, at his computer. I I didn't know that he had a laptop in his lap. This is like 2000 and probably three. You know, people didn't carry laptops in their cars back then. You know, right. we, we didn't have that. And what he did was he opened up a computer. All of a sudden it got green and blue in the cab of his car. And I thought, what the heck is he doing? And he looks at me. He looks at the computer. He looks at me. He looks at the computer. And then he just closes it and looks forward and puts his hands on the, the wheel. And I thought, okay, he's, he's following me. What the heck is this about? Yeah. So the light turns green and I stayed 
where I was at because I want his license plate number, right? Yeah. And and he stayed. He and just the didn't light move. is green. People are honking. He's staying. I'm staying. And finally, he guns it. And off he takes. And I took off. And I got his license before he did a really quick right. And off he went. And um, I phoned the police. And I think he had to be within maybe a government agency or something like that. Because my good friend in the police department said, yeah, we traced the plate. And it was to that car. But it's with an agency that has hundreds of cars. And we don't know who signed that out. And I said, it's very easy to find out who signed that out. You go to the company and you ask for the records. And he goes, Carrie, just leave it alone. I was like, what do you mean leave it alone? He goes, no, just leave it alone. I was like, nah, yeah, you don't know me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. But crazy stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and especially the sentence, you know, where they're like, oh, he's getting out early. It, you know, it's been nine years. And I'm like, yeah. I don't even think that's close to a month for every person. I mean, it's got to be nowhere near. Nowhere near. Right. I've and never that's... actually done the calculation on that. That's a good point. Really good point. Yeah. And it would never happen in the States. You know, no. you're looking at 300 years for the same, you know, conviction that uh, Carl Toft, you know, he, 200 youth and he had nine years served. That was it. Yeah, there there were so many. I had death threats at the house. I had a prisoner from Bowdoin Prison phone me at my house and threaten me. They're not supposed to be able to get on the phone. Right. Shortly after that, actually, I was invited by the. Oh, prison, uh, not marshal. Um, what do you call it? The guy in charge of the prison. Oh, Anyways, the warden. Warden, right. Not marshal, warden. I was invited because I, I was speaking out about this prison. This prison was in Bowdoin, Alberta, and it was a, a sex offender prison. So we stopped putting prisons in common areas with other prisoners. What we ended up doing was putting them in five prisons across the country that were specifically for sex offenders. So Bowdoin Prison was majority were sex offenders of the, you know, 70% sex offenders, 50% of those were pedophiles. So all of a sudden they found a network, you know, they went from feeling isolated and that they were the only ones that felt this sexual attraction to that they had roommates and they could do role playing and they could, you know, share pictures and, and names and addresses of their victims. And it just, it grew overnight, the network of pedophilia. It's just exploded ever since. Wow. I think it was the worst thing that we ever did was uh, these prisons. Yeah, certainly sounds like, you know, you built a community for them to totally. like find each other in. Mm-hmm. And it, it's crazy to think, you know, you're on this mission to protect children and you're getting death threats from yeah. people. It's like, it do- doesn't even matter who from, but to get death threats for protecting children seems like the craziest thing I can imagine. Well, there were a lot of people that didn't want me to do what I was doing because they were really enjoying their, their anonymity, their silence, right? I, I brought the whole issue to the forefront. I lost so many friends and uh, even family members wouldn't talk to me for a very long time. In-laws, family members, they really had a hard time with what I was doing. I had a girlfriend, really good girlfriend. Her husband phoned 
and said, you know, you've got to stop talking about this. You, I don't want you around my family talking about this. And I was like, well, it's something that we need to talk about, right? We need to get it out there. Yeah, it was a big taboo back in the early 2000s. And no one, it was like, shh, no one wants to talk about that. And meanwhile, children were being raped in the confines of many, many homes and businesses and churches and you name it, right? So you end up amending laws and not just one or two, but you go on to like, yeah, write 14 of these. That's pretty incredible on its own. And I imagine it's not without its own set of challenges, you know, just to just to work on that many laws. Yeah. It probably cost me my marriage, actually, when I look back, you know, it must have been very difficult on my former husband, because I was forever on phones talking with politicians and, and, you know, driving points forward. And it just was a natural transition from one to the next. When we would get one done, all of a sudden something would happen and another would appear. And it was like, okay, that's the next thing that we have to work on and focus on. And it would be a two-year focus until we would get that law in place. And then it would be maybe five years working on three separate ones simultaneously. Um, We worked at uh, bringing in minimum sentencing. When I first started, we had no minimum sentencing whatsoever, right? Yeah, I mean, Um, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. What we were talking about earlier, obviously no minimum because, you know, if you gave easily in the States, if you gave a year for every victim, which would be really mild here, like you'd be serving the rest of your life and far more. Right. Right. I know. Yeah. But no, this EPCAT report really showed that we were becoming a pedophile haven in Canada because when you look at the two countries and at that time, the border was pretty lax right? It's not like it is now. Uh, You know, if you committed the same crime in in the United States, you'd be looking at 300 years in Canada, if you got caught, you know, because we we really didn't have the police force to, you know, enforce the laws. And the laws were so weak, uh, you would be looking at six to eight months served, and then you'd be out again with the ability to go right back into business, right? Yeah. And you might have to pay 500 to a thousand dollars. And talk about a minimum risk to a person, you know, that sees the comparison. Exactly. So that was, you know, when I think back 21, 22 years ago now, you know, we had some major challenges that we were facing. And I think more than anything, they say that one in 20 males are pedophiles. That is the stat in Canada anyways. And then they also say 20% of all pedophiles are females. We never think of, I, I didn't at the time anyways, think of many women as being pedophilia, pedophiles, but, uh, but they are. You know, you look at teachers, you know, people of influence around children. Step-parents, teachers, they were the two highest offenders statistically. It was uh, a huge battle, but each law... Um, I started with Amber Alert bringing that in because that was that was a huge one. And the sex offender registry. We had no sex offender registry when I first started out. And uh, I went to our premier, uh, Premier Klein, Ralph Klein of Alberta. And I asked him, you know, would he consider, I had already gone to 
the Prime Minister of Canada at the time. He was not interested. I went to the uh, Justice Minister, Lawrence McCauley, and he later became the Defence uh, Minister, and he really wasn't interested. I, I often wonder about some of these politicians because I have never hit so many walls with some of these politicians. And in fact, they all told me, Lawrence McCauley, um, Wayne uh, Easter, Wayne Easter, he was our Solicitor General at the time and, uh, and our Justice Minister. They all told me that they were going to lower the age of consent from 14 at the time to 12 because they wanted to be more in line with the some European countries. Uh, so 12 years old with parental consent. And I said, so parents are able to prostitute their children out then at 12 years old? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Is that what you're trying to do? And they were like, no, 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 Caddy. We, we are not trying to do that. I'm saying it in a French accent because the, the justice minister at the time was a Frenchman, and that's what I'm recalling the memory, yeah. right? But um, but he he was really clear that this is was their agenda, and so I came back from Ottawa again, and I went coast to coast one more time, and and brought it to the public that the Liberal Party of Canada was planning to lower the age of consent to twelve years old, and we were able to go back in with the premier at the time, his cooperation, what he ended up doing, Ralph Klein. He was so on board with me. He was the one that actually got me started with Mad Mothers Against Pedophile. He gave me the city hall and all of the, you know, the setup. He did everything. So I was coming back with him again saying, I need your help one more time. We need to set up a sex offender registry. Can we do it provincially, like state-wise instead of federally? Because the feds, they don't want anything to do with this. He said, yeah, let's do it. So he then went to the premier's conference which was nationwide, and he presented it. Every single one of the premiers, which are like the governors, they all agreed, let's do a sex offender registry. Lawrence McCauley, the federal justice minister, came back in and said, no, 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 we'll do it. And so that was a two-year process of sitting in front of the Justice Committee of Canada and basically arguing with them to actually do this without any loopholes, right? Right. And, uh, you know, for a young woman at the time, I was in my 30s, I had very young children. And uh, it was a learning curve beyond learning curves, but no one else was doing it. And I just seemed to be in the right place at the right time and have the determination to do it. Right? Yeah, well, and mm -hmm. thankfully you did, because, mm -hmm. you know, who knows how many children you protected through doing what you did. Especially when you look at Amber Alert how many children that saves. Every time you hear that there's a successful Amber Alert, it brings tears to my eyes. Whether it's in, you know, North America or United States, Canada, wherever. Yeah. So do you think it was just there were mistakes made that led to these large gaps that all these laws needed to be filled? Or do you think it was, yeah. you know, they'd never been developed? Or do you think it was an ulterior motive intentionally oh. left? I would have to take door number three, you know, children being brought up out of the tunnels and and all of that. But that um, has been one of the biggest industries in probably the world. We haven't been aware of it. It's been a silent industry. In all my years, um, 
there's been a few things that really hit me between the eyes with pedophilia. Well, actually, all of it has. I mean, I was pretty naive coming into all of this. Um, but one of the things is the torturing of children. There's some really dark stuff in all of this. And so, you know, like I said, coming from a trailer park <laughs> in northern British Columbia and hoping like hell that that wall gets finished in the United States because that wall was closing down the trade, the child trafficking trade, like never before. That wall was the best thing that ever happened to protect children. And it's so unfortunate that it's come tumbling down because with it, as you know, all these children are coming over the border now, unaccompanied, right? Who's actually accompanying these kids and what's happening to them? So that was... A lot, a lot of people, like even myself, I used to cluck my tongue thinking, oh, you know, this racist and blah, blah, blah. You know, being an advocate for children, I soon started to see that, holy crap, that wall is actually effective. And so, you know, this all is continuing again. And it's, it's tragic. It's criminal. And we need to, you know, look into it more. We need to have more people speak up and say enough is enough. We got to protect the kids. Yeah, absolutely. And I just had a um a retired DEA agent on a couple days ago last week, something like that. Um all my days start to bleed together <laughs> a little. And yeah. uh he was talking, you know, about the the southern border and he's like, you know, people just can walk across now and and yeah. you know, with it comes so much of this drug trade. And I had thought so much about that because as unfortunate it is to, to want to flee your country, to know that, oh yeah, if you're just one in a thousand, you could bring, you know, duffel bags with you and who's going to stop you because, yeah. you know, you're part of the group. And yeah. I guess that's, that's the same thing. If you, you look at it and there's unaccompanied minors, who's to say they're not going to be exploited? You can almost bet they are mm -hmm. going to be. And these are thousands of unaccompanied minors. You can't expect a kid to walk across the desert and just yeah. set up life. That's right. So yeah. they've been taken from their families. They've been abducted and they're being brought into the country and transported. And it is a huge network. Yeah. Ultimately, I think countries are judged on how they treat their children. I have a dear friend here who is from Sweden and he was saying that Sweden, the kids can travel by themselves. You know, they, they put children and the protection of children foremost in their mind. The laws are so strict that no one would dare hurt a child. The kids can travel freely. Uh, they're paid for schooling. It goes into an allowance. Uh, they have free education in university. Uh, and they have one of the best educational programs. So their focus is really on children. And because they understand that that is our future generation. I mean, it sounds like a lot of us could learn from that. All of us. We are a future generation's history class. And what, what are they going to be reading about us? You know, how did we treat the children of today, of today's society? Are they going to read about us like we read about cannibalism or slavery? At that time, 
I was thinking slavery was dead. Uh, uh, uh. You know, I had no idea that child slavery, you know, and human slavery is probably at its peak today, all time peak. So, what I was saying there about our future generations history class, I think that this is something that we really have to take to heart and, and, determine what is it that we want the history books to say about who we are and what we did. Did we look into what is going on ourselves or did we just kind of, oh, well, someone else will take care of that, right? Someone else will make a difference. Someone else will protect the children. Someone else will do that. I did that for two years because of fear. You know, how am I going to public speak? I don't know how to public speak. Yeah, it seems like the default is just to be like, well, somebody else that knows more or has seen more or whatever is going to just take care of this problem for the rest of us. And it's like, well, someone has to make that decision. And if you're looking at a a stage with no one on it, you know, perhaps it's time to get on stage. Yeah, exactly. And perhaps it's time to make a difference. Perhaps it's time to stand up, speak up, rise up. I, I truly believe that our lives are meant to be lived. And in that living, we are meant to make a difference. We are meant to care for our children, as well as ourselves and our family and our loved ones. But, you know, we are, we are meant to do more than sit on a couch and eat potato chips at night and uh, waste time going nine to five. You know, not that nine to five is a waste of time, but I remember nine to five and for me, it was a waste of time. I was, I was a lost soul, right? So when you do something that you really love and it it also makes a different for difference for others, then you feel like you're actually living your life purpose. And I think that's what this is all about is, you know, if I can say anything, um, I was the learning disabled girl that ended up working with every prime minister since 1998, pretty much, including Justin Trudeau. I knew Justin before he was even prime minister. And uh, yeah, don't, don't hold that against me, (laughs) 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 you know, (laughs) but you can be an influencer. It goes right back to your very first comment. You can be an influencer no matter what your lot is in life. Absolutely. And that's so much of why, you know, I want to do these shows, you know, I had the chance to talk. Uh, the opioid epidemic is incredibly bad in the U S. And so I had the chance to talk with someone who was, you know, had struggled with addiction and recovered. And he, some of the things that he said just were like shocking. And I feel like, you know, there's a reason I need to, to bring people in to get this out there because if it exposes even one person that needs to hear it, you know, that's a good thing. And so to bring on people like him and people like you just to talk about, there is this issue. And if you've never considered it, like maybe it's, you know, something that you are passionate about and you should be the next person on that stage. Well, I can tell you, I'm old enough now that I'm passing the baton to the next people. I don't want to do this anymore, honestly. You know, I run a retreat center now in Portugal, and I focus on mind, body, spirit, on the healing. You know, I I help people that have gone through the child sexual abuse and are now wanting to do the healing process. So I've done full circle on it, you know, started off with the problem 
and ended up with a solution. And the solution is, you know, forgiveness. It's the five lessons of life, forgiveness, compassion, faith, trust, and unconditional love to not only the predator or the person that may have hurt you or bullied you or whatever it is, but more importantly to yourself as well. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, some very critical things that people could take away from that. So five lessons of life. I assume it's written under your name. It is. Yeah. It just won an award. Um, It was entered into the reader's favorite award, which was a covenant award right across, you know, North America, if not the world, actually, no, it's an international award. And it won uh, third place uh, under the category of religion and philosophy, which was a huge thing for a first time, you know, author. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And self-published because it was up against all the big ones, like Simon and Schuster and, you know, all the big uh, publishing houses and it won third. So pretty proud of that little book. Yeah. yeah. And, and wherever you can pull from to help other people along the way is yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So. so if any listeners are out there and they're thinking, I really want to make a difference, I really want to do this, but I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm, you know, too uh, ignorant, not educated, whatever it is, uh-uh-uh. you know, you just start. And the way I started was, I held a press conference. <laughs> I did, you know, let's do it big. And so when I found out the pedophile was in town, I held a press conference in our small little town and I let everyone in the whole community know. So we had the one reporter from our one little newspaper come out and our TV station, our cameraman came out and, uh, and covered it. And that was the start. And I hyperventilated as I was talking because <laughs> I, you know, so inexperienced, but you just keep going. Yeah. So follow your dreams and make a difference and let's save these kids. It's time that we as a nation, a global nation, protected children first and foremost. Right. It doesn't matter, you know, what country you're from or what country the, the victims are from. Everyone can take care of each other and especially children, you know, they're the ones that need us the most. Yeah, um, that's the thing, Colton. You know, I, I always got a kick out of, especially fathers would say to me, you know, if it was my kid, boy, oh boy, I would, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think, why does it have to be your kid? Right? Yeah. Yeah, your kid is my kid and my kid is your kid, right? We should be protecting each other's kids. Absolutely. And thank you so much for being on the show. I've really appreciated just listening to you talk about this. If anyone is looking to reach out to you or mm-hmm. attend your retreat or anything else, uh, where could they find you? I'm at support at carriecohan.com. Carrie is C-A-R-R-I-E and Cohan is K-O-H-A-N as in Nancy. My website, that's the email address, support at carriecohan.com. And the website is carriecohan.com. Really easy. Well, you made it very simple to find you. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. And like I said, the book is out. Um, We're going to be doing some retreats locally here in Portugal and just about to launch some online courses as well. And what else? Oh, there's so many things on the go here now. Just helping people get into their own connectedness, their own healing nature. So. Yeah, lots of beautiful things on the go. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you've got a a lot ahead of you still. 
Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I look More forward, books to come. Absolutely. Yeah. I look forward okay. to it. And uh, thank you so much for being on. Uh, it was a pleasure, dear. Thanks for having me. I hope you all took something away from this episode. I know it can't be the easiest thing to listen to, but it's within us all to make a difference in this world. If you want to make a difference by putting your voice out there like I am right now, this is my plug for my wonderful broadcaster that sponsors me. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Head on over to Podbean at www.podbean.com and use the code PODCAST21 for your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. Check it out. And I recognize now in reading that ad how it might sound like this is an expensive investment, but podcast hosting charges like $10 to $20 a month for the entry levels, which gives you most everything you need to get published out there. I know I've had a couple of listeners ask how I'm paying for this, and the answer is from my own pocket because it's just something that I thoroughly enjoy doing. And I had a couple that recommended I set up a Patreon, which was free, so I did set one up if you want to try and find us on there, and that's just dumb enough. If you are interested in something like that, or you just want to reach out for whatever reason, send me an email at dumbenoughpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or at dumbenoughpodcast pretty much everywhere else on the socials. Until next time, bye bye